Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. I'll begin reading in verse 11 for a beginning, a bit of context, but Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sorts of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So what's your favorite piece of tech? Well, new gadgets and inventions seem to hit the shelves with a fair amount of regularity, and often they're packaged with grand and radical promises. That app will boast of saving you gobs of time. The new kitchen appliance guarantees delicious food in minutes with little effort, Jetson style. Bikes are armed with batteries to zip you around town. Medical advances make treatable ailments once incurable. And self-driving cars flirt to revolutionize the driving experience. And without a doubt, much of this new technology is fun, it's helpful, and they can impact our lives significantly. And yet if you think about it, technology is also a bit faddish and short-lived. The, quote, life-changing app soon goes out of date and is rather pointless. You just figured out your new phone, and then an update comes along, and you have to relearn everything. And then there's the loss of power. Your battery dies, the electricity goes out, and your flashy electronic device is worthless. A dead phone is barely even good as a paperweight. It's enough to make you wonder that maybe we were better off with some of the old inventions. Well, our Lord is sort of a Luddite as he shapes and uses his amazing word like a timeless piece of old technology, namely the knife. So Hebrews has been urging us to be faithful in Christ. He warned us against the ruinous wrath if we fall away from the living God by unbelief and disobedience. But he also spread before us on the beautiful horizon of Christ's eternal Sabbath rest in heaven for us. For this long, wearisome task or trek through the world wilderness has the grandest finish line, respite with Christ as the unending vacation of worship and joy. Thus he did exhort us to strive to pursue with zeal to enter the retirement of Jesus so that none of us may fall short. Of course, as you know, striving is tiring. 
Striving is not some 30-minute or one-hour workout followed by a massage and a nap. No, it is the slow and steady of day in and day out. So then, what keeps us going? What's the instrument and equipment that fuels and guides you in your faith? What's the method of our pilgrimage? Well, the author develops his argument to answer this very inquiry. Strive to enter that rest, for the word of God is living and active. The GPS and nourishment of our pilgrimage is God's word, which the author now gives us an anatomy of. Our faith survives by the word, and this word is given an x-ray so that we can better understand the internal makeup and effectiveness of the word. So what's the word like in this thing we call the Bible? Well, first of all, it's living. The word is not some dead mummy that gathers dust in a museum, but it is alive just as the Lord is the living God. The eternal existence of God he imparts to his word, which means that the word is vivacious. It's breathing, present, and continuing into the future as an enduring and imperishable organism. Likewise, living communicates that the word is valid, true, and relevant. This touches on an inherent bias that we have as humans for the present. Our tendency is to think that the current, the new is better, or at least more relevant, than the things of the past. An old book may be interesting, a nice keepsake, but it is dated and out of style and in need of updating. And this may be true for many things, but not for the word of God. For it is alive, always up to date, just as fresh for us as it was for Noah so many millennia ago. Next, the word is active, which has the force of being powerful and effective. The word gets stuff done, and it never fails to accomplish its purpose. As we read in Isaiah 55, the word never returns to the Lord unfulfilled. It always hits its target. It checks off everything on its to-do list. Moreover, the word is not wimpy. It's not a delicate thing with a weak constitution. Rather, God's word is a muscular multitasker. There's no millstone that it cannot lift, no rock it cannot break, and no complexity that it cannot juggle. The infinite might of the Lord himself is infused into and carried out by his word. Next, the powerful life of the word is sharper than every two-edged sword. God's word is like that ageless tool that never goes out of use, the good old knife or sword. Now, a double-edged blade was considered the best and keenest of the day. It was the Japanese sushi knife of the ancient world. Yet the word is more razor sharp than the most acute knife blade. Indeed, look what it can do. The Damascus saber of the word can pierce soul and spirit, marrow and joint. Now, soul and spirit point to the the internal and immaterial part of our being, while marrow and joints cover our physical dimensions. 
Thus, body and soul, the word, can slice and dissect. And yet, in Scripture, soul and spirit are basically synonymous. They're the same entity. Now, sometimes soul highlights more our affections, and spirit covers more of our intellectual ability, but they're still essentially the same. Our soul and spirit is kind of like a scrambled egg. The yolk and the white are emulsified so that they're inseparable, for you can't undo a scrambled egg, but the blade of the word can. It can separate the soul from the spirit at the very point where they're most fused together. So also marrow and joint are the physical parts of our bones that are welded together, and yet the word can dissect them. The word is the Swiss army knife, the surgeon's scalpel, and the war sword all in one. And this word needs no updates. It requires no makeover or reimagining. For the word is like the timeless tool of the knife. Its battery doesn't die, its blade rusts not, and its edge never dulls. The home point of the word is able to get inside of us. Indeed, he goes on and stresses that the word penetrates us to discern and judge the ponderings and thoughts of our minds, our hearts. Now, as you know well, our inside musings are the most private and secretive part of us. We cannot read other people's minds, and they cannot read ours, and thank goodness, for we conceal our deepest thoughts and urges from our most intimate friends, even from the spouse that we are one flesh with. So well suppressed are some of our ponderings in the dark regions of our soul that we don't even know them consciously. When it comes to our inside voice, we are masters of disguise and illusion. And yet, the Sheol region of our heart, mysterious and cloaked, is easily sliced open by the word. The word of God cuts us to the quick. For the word remains not outside of us, but it bores inside of us to tease out and put on the scale every thought and intention we have. Indeed, the word is both a revealer, exposing our ideas, and it is a judge, evaluating the degree of piety or impiety within them. Hence, the sharp discernment of the Lord leaves us openly visible to God. Again, we have an inherent folly in that we suppose that God cannot see us. Or at least we enjoy thinking that there's pieces of us that are invisible to God. We love our mask and our costumes. Under the lip of, lipstick of concern will lurk our selfishness. Behind pious prayers, we shroud egotistical self-promotion. And because we can fool other people, we often think or figure that we can do the same to God. And yet by his word, nothing is invisible to God. Every creature is an open book to him. Indeed, the razor edge of the word cuts off our clothes and disguises and leaves us naked and exposed before God's eyes. 
The word lifts up our skirts and kilts and strips us down to our birthday suit. And the entirety of our shameful selves lay in the spotlight of God's holy eyes. And with this, it is clear that Hebrews here is tapping into a prevailing theme and truth of the Old Testament. Namely, that God alone knows and tests the human heart. We humans gaze upon the outside. We're preoccupied with external appearances, with beauty and clothes, with skin color and hairstyle. Yet Yahweh peers at the heart. As the Lord said to Samuel, man only sees what is visible, but the Lord sees into the heart. The Lord searches every heart and he knows every thought. As Jeremiah said, the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. We do not even know our own heart perfectly. We are self-deceived and ignorant of self. But God sees and knows us thoroughly down to the last cell and molecule. Therefore, Hebrews here is highlighting the searching power and exposing sharpness of the word of God. We cannot hide from the word, and we are incapable of deceiving our Lord. In this regard, the word is the blade of defense against the deceitfulness of sin that the author warned us against back in chapter 3. The word undresses the sin that we cover up in. Hence, Hebrews particularly underscores the power of the law in God's word at this point. The law weighs us in its balances. It convicts us. The law judges both our external actions and our hidden thoughts. This is why the knife imagery here is rather hostile and violent. The picture here is not the healing cut of a surgeon's scalpel, but is much more the lethal slice of a sword that leaves our shame and guilt exposed before the holy gaze of the Lord. This is the convicting and judging power of the word, the sword prick of the law. Thus, Hebrew displays the living sword of the word as part of his warning for us not to fall short. The wavering saints that the author is dealing with, they think after some fashion that there will be no consequences if they depart from Christ. But this is far from the case as the word will find them out, cut them bare, and expose them to the Lord's eyesight. And yet this warning is not alone here. It's not the end in and of itself. Instead, this keen prodding of the living word is intended to drive us to the gospel. Thus, the consequences of the word undressing us is, as he says in the next verse, we have a great high priest. When you're naked, you run for cover. And so our covering is Jesus, the Son of God. Indeed, this is exactly the purpose of a priest A priest intercedes for forgiveness and life when the law has convicted us as guilty and a debtor to death. And the priest we have is no average priest. 
He doesn't have three stars on an Amazon review, but five stars from heaven. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, high elevates Jesus as a priest over normal priest, while great exalts our Lord as superlative. Being both great and high lauds Christ as the greatest. And what makes Jesus the best and the brightest? Well, just as we got anatomy lesson on the word as sword, so now we also get an x-ray of the features of Christ as our high priest. And first up is that Jesus passed through the heavens. Now, this most likely refers to the location of atonement. In the Old Testament, the Aaronic high priest affected atonement for the people's sin by entering the sanctum and then the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood for forgiveness and purification. And these two holy rooms within the tabernacle were copies and pictures of heaven. The sanctum of the tabernacle was a type of heaven on earth. And so the priest of old served on earth, but Jesus actually traveled up into heaven by the eternal spirit to perform his priestly atonement. Christ did not minister in a model, in a diorama of heaven, but in the reality itself. To pass through heaven, then, makes his priestly labor perfectly effective for you. Jesus entering heaven pairs with and balances the living and active word. Both accomplish their purpose without fail. And with Jesus, the Son of God, being our perfect priest, we are called to hold fast to our confession, which is a call to faith. To confess refers to our public, credible profession of faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Thus, the sharp edge of the word leaves us naked in our sin so that we are called to trust in Christ as our priest. The law leaves us wanting and condemned, but faith in Jesus brings us pardon and purification. By the grip of faith, all the sweet wonders of Christ's priestly ministry flow to us and keep us always. And these wonders are nothing short of spectacular as they're listed out here. To begin with, our high priest is not unsympathetic with our weaknesses. Now, if someone is interceding for you, you don't want them to be calloused and unfeeling towards your plight. If your attorney thinks you're a loser for getting into trouble, then he's not going to represent your interest at the best level. Instead, it is much better if the person feels for you, pities you, and yearns to help you. Compassion and sympathy make the best helper. So our high priest Christ sympathizes with our weakness, he grieves for our frailties, and he has compassion upon our woeful state. And Christ pities us because he actually felt what we feel. Jesus entered your pain. He walked in your shoes. He was tempted and tested in every way you are from beginning to end. Hunger, he experienced it. Loneliness, he bore it. Evil opposition, 
he endured it. Jesus is not a stranger or foreigner to our hardships, challenges, or our affirmities. But he became intimately familiar with our natures in this life under the sun. Too often we like to stiff-arm help by saying, you don't know what I'm going through. We isolate ourselves as completely unique. No one can empathize with us. So that we, um, so that no one else can tell us what to do. But we can't say this about Christ. Jesus knows precisely the pain and weakness that we live in. With perfect honesty, Jesus can say to you, I know what you're going through. I feel your pain. Yet where we stumble and fail in our weakness, Christ succeeded. He was tempted at us, but without sin. He was tested like us, and yet came out with a gold star. If you need help studying for a test, the best tutor is one who's already taken the test and aced it. If someone gets a D- minus on the test, they're not a good study partner. Thus, the 100% righteousness of Christ is our ideal help and compassion. Him being like us in our weakness, but him being not like us in his successful outcome, makes Jesus the best high priest. Indeed, through the intercession of Christ, the author says we can draw near to the throne of grace. And the reality of this line is awe-inspiring. For God's throne is the epitome of a paradoxical place. The throne of our Lord is the source of highest good. It's the nucleus of true life and blessing. And yet for sinners, the throne spells death and condemnation. God's throne is like the sun. We need its light for life, but its rays of glory scorch and turn us to ash. Thus in the Old Testament, the throne of God is lauded as being founded in justice and righteousness. In the tabernacle, God's throne was above the ark and the cherubim, and no one could draw near. To touch the ark, the throne, meant instant death. In fact, even to look upon the ark slayed you on the spot in the Old Testament. Thus, the ark was fenced off by curtains and swords so that wrath did not break out and so that no one could draw near. But with Christ as our high priest, the throne of God gets renamed the throne of grace. The high chair of God no longer destroys us, but has become a fountain of grace in Christ. Thus we can do what no Israelite under the law could do. We can draw near. We can belly up to the royal seat of our Lord with confidence. Such confidence means that the fear of judgment has been quenched. The insecurity of sin has been assuaged. In fact, the primary note of this confidence is to speak openly and frankly. This confidence is the right of free speech granted to us in Christ. The grace of Christ allows us to speak freely with God without the dread of being canceled. 
Through the intercession of Christ, he doesn't police our speech or restrict what we can say. Thus, this drawing near to the throne refers to our worship and our prayers. The free speech of our worship means we can sing hymns. Frank talk means we can spill out all our thoughts to the Father in prayer. We don't have to conceal our sins. There's no need to dress up our frustrations and our griefs to make them prim and proper. Rather, we can give honest voice to all our raw emotions, our coarse thoughts, and tiresome pains. And as we boldly draw near to the throne in Christ, we are assured of receiving mercy. And mercy is chiefly about not punishing us as we deserve. Mercy stops the hatchet of the law's executioner. Mercy stays the guillotine. It cuts the hangman's rope that is our just punishment. Mercy from God's throne means you are not punished for your sins. For Christ's priestly work liberated you from condemnation and he spares you from the wrath that we earned for our sinful selves. And what a sweet enticement for us to prayer and confession of sin. If you have to admit all your crimes in order to be judged, well then we will lie and protest until we're blue in the face. But if mercy seals upon you no condemnation in Christ, then repentance can be enjoy full and open disclosure of all our felonies. And yet Jesus didn't just win for us mercy, but in him we're also granted grace. Mercy removes the punishment we deserve, but grace gives us the blessings and favor that we do not deserve. Grace imparts to us all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection, namely the garment of Christ's righteousness, adoption in him, loving care, and the guarantee of resurrection. Grace shines the light of God's face upon us. And the grace of God in Christ serves us with timely help. Christ's grace aids us at just the right moment. As you know, help needs to be both given and timely. If someone gives you a wrench when you need a screwdriver, it's nice, but it's not effective. Powerful help supplies the right tool for the job at hand. Thus, God's grace aids us just when we need it, which trumpets the Lord's loving wisdom. For we don't always know what we need in the moment, but God does. Such timely help further underscores how Jesus became fully like us, but without sin. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. This is the experienced support of Jesus For you throughout life. For Jesus has been where you have been, and he is passed with flying colors. Thus, he is able to lavish upon you his loving help just when you need it and as much as you need. Indeed, this mercy and grace of Christ's high priesthood is the full purpose of God's sharp sword word. Yes, the blade of the word leaves us naked. 
but it does so so that Jesus can cover us with the garment of his salvation. For as long as we remain dressed in our filthy sin, Jesus can't put new clothes on us. But the word cuts off our manured, stained outfit so that Christ can adorn us with his royal robes of heaven. The word exposes our bankruptcy so that we can become rich in mercy and grace through faith alone in Christ. Thus, dear saints, may we hold fast to Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. And let us approach the throne of grace with free speech to receive timely medicine of mercy and grace from the hands of Christ. For as we are helped by Christ's love, then we are able to live for his glory and we are made secure in him now and always until he brings us through this world to his eternal Sabbath rest. And may that day come quickly. Amen. Let's pray.